0: worship. And uh, yep, you can clap at that. It really was. And so as our Cactus Campus in Northridge and Chapel join us, we hope and trust you guys had amazing worship as well. And then certainly all of you still joining us online. Hey, I wanna make a a couple of comments before I pray and and dive into our time in the Word uh, that just hit me this week that I I know you guys know, and and I've shared these things before, but it's been a while, and so I just wanna give you an encouragement. Uh, I was wondering, why does this look all blurry? I don't have my glasses on. There we go. Uh, and, and, and that is, uh, th- that one, first thing, is that, you know, the pandemic obviously is still raging in, in, our, in our country, and Arizona, sadly, is leading the way, and, and it hit me this week that there is still a lot of fear and certainly isolation going on, both in our culture as well as, as in our church, and, and my encouragement to you in light of that is don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, Your church is here for you. We are doing very well. Uh, We have over 40 pastors at our church here. Every campus has multiple pastors and we have a pastor on call uh, 24/7. We have an online pastor. I mean, we have no shortage of uh, help for you with counsel and prayer. And so if you are hurting and if you feel uh, fearful, isolated, what have you, please don't hesitate to reach out to your church because we are here for you and I just wanna reiterate that for you. We're all in this together. Uh, the second thing I wanna comment on that might be a little bit more dicey and, and just hear this as you will, is that it hit me this week with the you know, increasing political, economical, or economic, moral uncertainty and unrest going on in culture today. Um, if I, If I say to you in light of the pandemic, don't be afraid to reach out, what I would say to you in light of all the other stuff is don't be afraid to trust God, amen? Don't be afraid to trust God. You can clap at that if you want to. Um, you know, people, people, you know, email me or, or, or even you know, stopping and, and and try to see me, and they and they say, uh, you know, what are we going to do about this? You know, and meaning all the craziness and culture. And I go, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. My job is to is to shepherd you. My job is to build our church, which last I looked was the vision of Jesus as well. And it doesn't mean we can't have impact on the culture out there. But hear this as you will. My responsibility is, and the elders of our church are are to build a strong church and to build into you and to help you walk with God and do all the things that we do as well as evangelize the lost, but it's not to somehow save culture. If God wants to do that, that's up to him, and, and he will do that. But our job is to build a strong church that then hopefully will have some influence on culture. And so that's why I say that when things are going on crazy out there, my concern for you, and, and you would want this no other way, is are you trusting God Are you having an unwavering faith in him, which is what Jesus wants from you more than anything else, and not caving into fear? Remember what John said in 1 John 4? He said, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so as you get perfectly in touch with Jesus' love for you and his activity in your life, fear is gonna diminish, trust will increase. And again, I know how some of you think, and again, this is as hard as I'll push you. You know, some of you are tempted to say to me, well, I am trusting God. You know, well then, act like it, okay? That's what I need you to do. Because sometimes the way that you interface with me and those around you, I'm not judging, I just kind of get the sense that maybe you need to trust God a little bit more because it's not showing as much as maybe you want it to. That's my encouragement, even admonition to you in light of all the craziness. So we love you and we're here for you. Don't be afraid to reach out. And, and please, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't be afraid to trust God because I sure am. And I'm just cons- as concerned about, as you guys are about you know, things going on around me, but it just causes me to go more to my prayer closet and to spend time with him, which we're gonna do right now. So why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful, wonderful encouragement of scripture that through thousands of years, in dire times and in good times, you call us to be men and women who have an unwavering faith in Jesus and an unconditional love for each other. And so God, I pray that as we engage those two aspects of our faith that the Bible talks about, that God, you would uh, just work in and through us. God, as we focus today on this book that we've been looking at the last week or so, this book of Philemon, one of the shortest books in the New Testament, I pray, God, that you might speak to us, catch us off guard, teach us some things that we don't know, and if we do know these things, cement them even further in our hearts and minds, I pray. And, And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So this will be kind of a fun start. I think I know the answers to this. But let me ask you, have you ever initially met somebody and thought, ooh, I think I'm going to like this person only to get get to know them more and find that you don't really like them? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Not with any of you, mind you, but it has happened to me over the years. Or, or, or how about this one, better yet, uh, I, that you initially meet someone and you think, oh, I, I don't think I'm going to like them. And then you get to know them and you find that you do actually like them. Or, or best yet, you would initially meet someone and you think, oh, I, I really like this person. And you get to know them and you find that, man, I'm going to like them even more here's the deal. I'm guessing that most of you have had uh, an experience like that in your life where you meet someone and and it's only through getting to know them that you really find out whether you like them or not. It was the winter of 2008. I had been here in Phoenix only a a few months and someone set up a golf game uh, over at Moon Valley Golf Club because they wanted me to meet uh, a very popular pastor in the area here by the name of Tom Schrader. I didn't know Schrader from Adam, never met him, but I said, sure. I mean, I'm new. I I wasn't rejecting appointments by then. So I said, I'm going to meet with uh, this guy and and, and meet Schrader. So I can remember pulling into the parking lot at Moon Valley there. I've only played there a few times. And uh, as I was getting out of the car, uh, there were obviously other people getting out for their tea time as well. And I I saw this one guy that caught my eye because he didn't look like he belonged at a golf club. He, He had on the proper shorts, but he had on just this atrocious, I mean, ugly Hawaiian shirt that was really eye-catching, not in a good way. And then as you looked up, he had this long hair, which would be great if he was a young worship leader here at the Shea campus, but but he was like 10 years older than me, and it was stringy, white, long hair. He looked like the mad scientist from Back to the Future, you know, that type of look. And, 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 and then, you know, he was kind of short and frumpy. And honestly, I remember thinking to myself. I, I thought this. I thought, that's me if I let myself go. I mean, I could look just <laughs> like that. And I had no idea that it was Schrader. And so I, I, I get into the, the golf club, and I meet my guest, and my, my host, I'm sorry, and, and, he, and he introduces me to Tom Schrader, this pastor. And I and I, you know, it was awkward, because so I said, hi, this is good to meet you. I lied, you know. And, uh, and, and I said, I, I've heard a lot about you, uh, another lie, you know, and all this other stuff, and I'm just trying to hang on for dear life. And we golf for 18 holes. And, and I've always said to you guys, I'm not always proud of this, but my, my two love languages are cynicism and sarcasm. And, and, and I fell in love with Tom from the first time he started talking. I remember we were on one of the holes and I, I was trying to engage Tom and I said, hey, I, I hear you're a Calvinist. And that might that mean something to you guys, but it's a theological persuasion. He said, yeah. And I said, you know, I said, I'm kind of a Calvinist too. And I said, but what kind of hits me is that, you know, John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, like, you know, they didn't share one of our five points of Calvinism, not one. And yet they're probably gonna be closer to the throne in heaven than we are. And he said, what's your point? I said, well, you know, that Calvinism, which we might feel strongly about, is not the be-all and end-all theology. And He looked at me and said, shut up and just hit the ball, would you? <laughs> I said, I like this guy. Uh, about a month later, we went out to lunch, tried to follow up our friendship, and I'll never forget this statement. He sat down at Mimi's where we were meeting just down the road there, and he he started off the conversation this way. He said, so here's what I know. He said, you're Jamie Rasmussen. You're the new senior pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church, and and he said, and, and, and you're exactly what they need and I can't believe they hired you. And I thought, I'm gonna like this guy. For the next 10 years before Tom's untimely death, uh, two years ago, uh, we spent a ton of time together there there'll be times where we referred to each other as the odd couple. You guys remember that show? Some of you older people do, where obviously he was Oscar and I was Felix. We we were two guys, and this is gonna be where we go today, what we're gonna talk about today, that, that should have almost had nothing to do with each other in our temperaments and the way that we functioned and all of that, but because of Jesus, we came together and became fast, fast friends. My guess is we can all relate to a story like that, You initially meet someone, and you have a certain opinion of them, whether negative or positive or even neutral, and it's only when you get to know them on a deeper, more relational level that your view of them comes into clearer focus. And so here's what we learn from this, it's a life truth that has carried me the distance and has everything to do with the look in the Bible that we're going to turn to in just a minute, and it's this, it's your main point today, and that is that we learn from this that relationality sharpens perspective. I think we all know this in life, relationality sharpens perspective. What do we mean by this? If you were to look up that word relationality in the dictionary, it would be defined as this. It's a state or condition of being relational. (laughs) It's simply drawing close to another person and getting to know them, their life story, their thoughts, their feelings, what makes them tick. It's getting to know them for who they are and how God made them to be. It's not being afraid to draw close and engage in relationality with them. And when we do this, what we're gonna learn today is that it sharpens our perspective of them. It can actually change the way that we might have initially saw a person as it did with me and Schrader. Relationality is that powerful. And the reason that this is important is that I hear from many of you at times that you kind of think differently. The, The way that we're tempted to think in our American culture here is that my thoughts, are the only thing that ter- determines my perspective of another person. So I might initially meet Brian here, my friend in the second row here, and after a few minutes with him, we're kind of arrogant, aren't we, as Americans? We say, well, I've sized him up, and I have thoughts of him, and I'll go home and watch the game this afternoon, I'm gonna watch the Browns lose this afternoon, and, uh, and, and as I'm watching the game, I might be thinking of Brian, and, uh, and I have further thoughts about him and I'll think more about him and I'll, and I'll allow my thoughts to determine my perspective of him. That's how we tend to think. And we're missing a component there. We're going to learn this today, that, 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 that your thoughts need to be informed by relationship. That until I spend more time with my friend Brian, as I did with Tom Schrader, I have no right, the Bible's going to tell us, to develop more perspective of him because it's only relationship that can determine one's perspective of another human being. It's how God made us. And so with all that's going on today, the political divide, the economic divide, the mask divide, and certainly the racial divide, what we're gonna see today as we continue through the New Testament book of Philemon is that God's prescription for you and me as the church is not to form any perspective without first engaging in deep and loving relationality because only relationality can sharpen our perspective of a fellow believer and even another human being. So let's turn to the word of God and, and I'm gonna show you what I mean. Last week we started a three week journey through the New Testament book of Philemon. Let's very briefly review the storyline here. If you miss it, even in my little review here, you can get it from last week, Uh, but let's review the storyline. It's the first century A.D., Paul the Apostle is spreading the gospel throughout all of Asia and the Middle East and he's he's starting churches as he goes along. And at one point, he finds himself, here's a map in in modern day Turkey called Asia Minor back then. And you'll see on the dotted lines here, he's going to all these Roman cities, preaching the gospel, turning people on to Jesus, and then starting churches there. And at one point, let's explode the map here, he gets to this town called Colossae, and he meets a guy named Philemon. Philemon's a really successful business guy and and he leads Philemon to Jesus. And Philemon believes in Jesus and converts to Christianity and and it's so strong that he leads his family to Christ and then his friends to Christ and even starts a church in his house because they had to have house churches back then because the Roman government wasn't too high on them building churches. And so once Paul establishes that church here in Colossae, he then goes to Ephesus along the shores of the Aegean Sea, and in Ephesus, he stays there about three and a half years, has an up and down experience there. At one point, we assume he's in prison, and he meets a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus, again, Paul leads to Jesus, and he becomes a Christian, and it's then that Onesimus' story comes out as all of our stories should come out in the relationality of our Christian faith. And and, and Onesimus shares with them that he was originally from Colossae where he was a slave, a barbaric practice back then as it is today. The Bible's not for that. And and Onesimus was a slave. And Paul says, well, who was your master? Because Onesimus has now run away from his master. And he says, a guy named Philemon. And Paul goes, I know him. I led him to Jesus, and Paul hatches his plan and says, let's write him a letter. And it's got a letter basically being saying, hey, we're all equal in Jesus. There's no reason for slavery or any silliness like that, and you need to set him free. And that's the birth point of the book of Philemon. And Paul's basically writing to Philemon in this short but power-packed letter asking him, to now see Onesimus as simply a fellow follower of Jesus, not a slave, and release him, literally set him free. And yet, as I said last week, how Paul asks this, the rhetoric and the words that he uses is where the real power of this letter is found. And so last week, we wrapped up by simply noting one initial thought as we looked at the first three verses of this letter, and that is that we each have a choice in what kind of lens we use to view others. We can either use the lens of this world, seeing others through their physical appearance, their social status, their religious devotion, or their ancestry and race, or, We can choose to see other through kingdom lenses, things like being made in the image of God and saved by Jesus and now our brothers and sisters as fellow servants in the Lord and all the other words and phrases that are used in the book of Philemon and how we need to view each other. And so in reading on, I want us to now look at the next set of verses in this short but power-packed letter, and I want you to notice how Paul is going to switch gears right now. He's going to get off the lens thing, and he's going to move on to the topic before us today and reveal how relationality sharpens perspective. So look at the next five or six verses, Philemon 1, verses 4 through 9. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am of such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ. As a very quick side note, when Paul refers to himself as Paul the aged, is it just me or do some of you feel that way as well? I I, I said this week to Kim, I think I'm going to start calling myself Jamie the Aged, and and so we'll get off that right now. So let's drill down on a few things here so we can clearly get, now watch this, the logic of what is being laid out here. Uh, Paul is obviously asking Philemon, this successful businessman, slave owner, who is now a passionate follower of Jesus and has a church in his house, to change his perspective on Onesimus' And to now see him differently, as we saw last week, to see him equal and set him free. That's the ask that Paul is giving here. And yet, the logic is worth dialing into. Notice that he begins with love three times. I kind of paused and pointed it out here. He mentions love in verses five, seven, and nine. Look again at how he says it. This is important. He says, I hear of your love toward all the saints. Your love, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For love's sake, I rather appeal to you. So thrice over, he refers to love. And of the four Greek words that Paul could have used, he had a choice back then to refer to love. He chooses all three times the Greek word agape. He's making a point. Agape means unconditional love. It's the highest and best kind of love there is. It's the kind of grace-oriented love that Jesus talked about, this kind of love that God has for you. And he's saying that kind of love that accepts you, no strings attached for who you are and sees you as an amazing creation of God, have this kind of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's essentially saying to Philemon, he's encouraging him, now that you know Jesus, and have come home to him. You relate to those around you with an unconditional love, Philemon, and it's welling up inside of you. Way to go. It's working. You're off to a good start. And believe it or not, this is simply a prelude to his primary point that happens next in this logical progression, and that is that once we love another person, we now move quickly into fellowship, fellowship. Look at verse six again. He says, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And Wright, in his wonderful little commentary on Philemon argues that this verse is actually the theme verse of the entire letter. So right away, we're at the mountaintop of this letter right now, that this is Paul's main argument according to Wright's analysis. He points out that fellowship, this Greek word koinonia, is a radical and rugged relationality that the church engages in with each other. One author calls it an intimate association in which we now see ourselves, now watch this, not as an independent entity, but as a community of faith rubbing shoulders with each other on a regular basis, sharing our stories, our lives with each other. It's relationality at its best. We're a Jesus-linked, love-linked, organic community in which relationality is the name of the game. And it's so strong that you actually put aside your individual concerns for the sake of the whole. Look at how Wright says it, I like this analysis. He says the idea we need to grasp, the theme that dominates the letter, is that in Christ Christians not only belong to one another, but actually become mutually identified with each other. He says all are bound together in a mutual bond that makes our much prized individualism look shallow and petty. So it's a rich and robust fellowship, a radical and rugged relationality that becomes the seedbed, don't miss this, for Paul's plea for Philemon to see Onesimus as completely equal to him and to not see him as a slave or culturally or racially inferior to him, but as one of him, even one with him. So it goes from love to this intimate relational fellowship, but he's not done yet, because he goes on to a third thing in his logic here, and that is, he says, once you go from love to fellowship, it will create a knowledge of you and that other person that will start to fill in the gaps. Again, look at verse six. He says, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. So fellowship relationality becomes productive and useful only as it gives us knowledge of each other and another person in which you say, ah, I get it, I get their lot in life, and I, and I love them, accept them as an equal. So add it all up, gang. Don't miss what's being laid out here. This is really good stuff. Love leads to fellowship, which leads to knowledge, or as we started off with, relationality sharpens perspective. That's the theology being given here. And at this point, and only at this point, Paul now goes for the jugular with Philemon, and he says this, these famous words in verses 8 and 9. He says, therefore, pause right there, therefore, therefore what? based on love that leads to fellowship that produces true relational knowledge, what he just laid out. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now have, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So in modeling for Philemon, what he is in turn asking of him in light of Onesimus, Notice that Paul treats Philemon as an equal, as, a, as a, simply a brother in Christ. And he basically says to him, though I have the authority as an apostle to order you to release Onesimus, but because I love you and know you, I would rather appeal to you to do the right thing. You can, you can just sense the respect that he has for him. And folks, we are nudging up right now against one of the most beautiful and workable things for the church in all of Scripture. Paul is laying out here a very clear and powerful theology of love, leading to relational fellowship, leading to rich knowledge that sees each other on equal footing as equals, and then he appeals to Philemon to put this thing into practice and to repent of his cultural-born inhumane bigotry, so popular in the Roman world back then and begin to see Onesimus as a brother in the Lord, fully equal and fully a part of the fabric of faith that, Paul, or that Philemon is a part of, and then release him from his bondage. It's a beautiful thing, and even more so, it's a workable thing if God's people would actually become a part of this. You know, one of the things that I do when I'm a, preparing my messages, and I don't even know why I do this. I I just sort of ask myself when I get to a a stopping point point, and I understand the point, you know, when was the first time, Jamie, the light went on in your head and you realized this? I've been a Christian now for 40 years, so I got lots of stories and lights that have gone on in my head, but I always think, when was the first time you realized this? Which is why I sometimes tell you stories of the old days. I was actually in college and only been a Christian a few months when I had my first experience with this, And and I smile when I think about it. I was at a small secular school in Michigan. Uh, Hillsdale College now is much more Christian, but back then it was not at all. In fact, there were very, very few born-again Christians on my campus. And I was feeling very lonely. I was in a fraternity, but they were like animal house, so that wasn't helping, and I, I just felt very alone. And I could only identify two Christians in my entire dormitory my freshman year. But there was a problem. Seeing them through the lens that I grew up in, that we talked about last week, One of them was an absolute nerd. That was the first Christian. I know it's hard to picture a Christian as a nerd, but just go with me on that. And the other one would have been described as a hippie. He probably should have been born about 10 years earlier and driving a VW bus with peace symbols on it because that's the way he functioned. He loved to play his acoustic guitar and call everybody man and things like that. And and I remember just thinking to myself, this is is the choice I have for for fellowship? A, A nerd and a hippie. And by the end of my freshman year, they were my two best friends in college. And the reason is, is because I had a choice. I was either gonna try to fit into the world and culture around me and just hang around all these people that that though I loved and would eventually have influence on, my fraternity and things like that, or or, or I desperately desperately needed this this fellowship, this relationality with other brothers and sisters. And these are only two I could find, the, the nerd and the hippie. And I chose, without even knowing anything about Philemon, to engage in deep and rich love and relationality with these guys and get to know them and what makes them tick and who they are and their their dreams and their shattered dreams and all these things. And relationality sharpens perspective. And I grew to love them, even though initially I, I didn't think that would necessarily happen. This initial experience I had almost 40 years ago, unbeknownst to me, would go on to set me up for a lifetime of learning as I had to cross as a pastor all sorts of, of barriers and boundaries and hurdles in both my personal and professional world. But when I graduated college and then went to seminary, I found myself pastoring in Detroit, as many of you know, for about 10 years, almost all the 1990s and our joke back in the 1990s when people used to ask us, you know, how's it going in Detroit? We used to say, well, it's, it's as bad as you hear. It's really true. It was a mess back in the 90s, probably still a mess today. I, I used to ride motorcycles back then. I had a Yamaha 750 triple and on Sunday afternoons to, uh, to kind of unwind from church and all that, I used to drive down into the city of Detroit. We were on the last city block of Detroit, so I'd drive down into the city, it was like a ghost town like that movie, I Am Legend, you know, if you see see that movie, I mean, it's just desolate. And and, and that's how bad it was. But that wasn't the worst of it. Detroit, back in the 90s, and probably still today to to some degree, was also extremely racially divided. The city of Detroit, as best we could determine back then, was 75% African American, and the suburbs were well over 90% Caucasian. And and here we were on the last city block of Detroit as an all-white church. And just across the street from us was an all-black church, a missionary Baptist church. And being tender-hearted pastors, we had tried for the first few years to to link arms and develop relationship, but it was really hard to break into that until a turning point occurred. And many of you will remember this with the Promise Keepers movement. Promise Keepers was a big men's movement that brought men from all different places and stuff together for these huge conferences. And around the mid-1990s, there was a massive pastor's conference for Promise Keepers in Atlanta, Georgia, And there was a businessman in Detroit that came up with a wonderful idea. He said, I wanna send 30 pastors from Detroit to this pastor's conference, and I'm gonna pay for their airfare, their their, their hotel room, all their food. We never pass up anything free, and so the 30 of us were like, yes, we're in. And then he said, I have one rule. I want 15 of you to be white, and I want 15 of you to be black, and if you're gonna go on my dime, I want each white pastor to room with a black pastor And I want you to spend your whole time together. And we took him up on this. And I remember getting linked with a beautiful brother in in the Lord named named Scotty. And, And Scotty and I just, you know, we're rooming together, we're flying together, we're eating together, and we just started to share our stories. And again, relationality sharpens perspective. Love leads to fellowship, leads to knowledge. And as we spent that week together, we started a friendship. When we got back to Detroit, we started to share meals together, we got our families together, and then eventually we said, hey, how about getting our churches together? Because that's been the big divide we can't seem to, to bridge. Kevin, my senior pastor, also developed some relationships on that trip, and so we decided to bring the churches together, but boy, were they different churches. And I'm not just talking black and white. His church was, was a black Pentecostal church, and it's called Kojic, if you're familiar with denominations, Church of God in Christ. And he and his brothers were leading the church and they're very high up in it, and, and they worship different than us, they preach different than us, they preach longer than us, all these things. And so we 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 did multiple services together at our campus and then at their campus. Here's a picture. I still smile at this one of one of the times that we got together here. You'll see why I smile in a minute. This is Scotty here and his brother Clyde and my senior pastor Kevin, and then and that's me, the short guy over here. I, the one with hair, and, and then next to me is the chairman of our board, who's now with the Lord in heaven, uh, Fred. And why I smile at this picture is that, you know, the, the worship there was extremely expressive. And uh, so obviously Scotty and, and, and Clyde are, are are very expressive in, in their worship, and Kevin's getting into it. And Fred, he, he never let go of his bulletin. He just clutched that thing the whole time. <laughs> because I think he felt like if I, if I did, I won't have to clap or raise my hands, and so he just clutched that thing, and, and, and then there's me caught in the middle, and, and you can see I, I so wanted to lift my hands, but I wasn't quite there yet, and, and, I, and I felt so inhibited, but also wanting to be free, and, and this was just the state of our relationships. And we hung in there with each other. It was such a moving thing when I eventually went into the senior pastor at Scotty and a bunch of the brothers from his church came to London, Ontario where I was getting installed and helped me get installed as the new senior pastor there. And more than anything, and again, I'm not gonna share too much here, but more than anything, the love that led to fellowship led to knowledge. Now, now here's the point, people. Knowledge that I thought I had and that most white people do, that I didn't realize I was missing. As I spent time with Scotty, he shared with me what it was like being a black man growing up in Detroit. And again, I thought I knew. I just assumed I'm a well-educated person. I didn't know. And I didn't know a lot of what it was like for him and what he felt. And to use Ephesians one language, the eyes of my heart were enlightened as I spent time with him. And I grew to love him and his church, and, and the city a lot more than I thought I ever could. What I learned, and I've learned this a thousand times over in other settings, is that Philemon is right. If we will engage in love, if we will engage in relationality, what the Bible calls fellowship, then knowledge, the knowledge we need to move God's kingdom forward will come our way. But that's where the challenge lies. At Larry Crabb and his One of his famous books calls the church the safest place on earth. (laughs) I remember reading that years ago and said, well, maybe. (laughs) I mean, church should be the safest place on earth, but it always isn't. And yet my vision for the church and for our church is that as we increasingly take the risk to love and to fellowship, that maybe, just maybe, people might see this place as the safest place on earth. That's the goal, that's what God wants. I read an article this week that kind of made me sad and I didn't initially get it, and as I thought about it, I thought, I get it, I get it. The article was, had done a, done a study on pastors about three four years ago and found that the average evangelical pastor in America three or four years ago, the vast majority of them felt safe and free to preach on racial reconciliation. Just preach it, you know, it's obviously so biblical, and just preach it and let loose and, and do that. But in 2020, after all that's gone on in culture, uh, those stats have plummeted, that the average pastor, only 32% felt completely free to preach on racial reconciliation. The the vast majority of pastors are are, are afraid or timid to do so. And and, and I initially thought, now how in the world could that be? Because when you think about it, it, it's kind of been elevated in culture today and people are talking about it more and what have you. I mean, why would pastors shy away from it? And then it hit me. And and that is that that the way that our culture is going about this is using phrases and ideas and methodologies that that are creating contention among quite a few people, the conservatives versus the progressives and all of that, and and, and pastors who tend to be rather tender-hearted people don't want to wade into all of that crud. And, And they're afraid if they even talk about this, they're just gonna get so much of it. Now watch this, from you... Because you are tied to CNN, and you are tied to MSNBC, and you are tied to Fox News, and you are tied to the New York Times bestseller list. In other words, I'm not indicting you, even though it feels like I am, kind of. You are tied to all these things that culture is talking about, and when you come into church and all of a sudden we start that discussion, you want to drag all of that rhetoric and all of those ideas into here. Here. And believe me, I know it, because when I broached this subject just last June, I got emails from you guys and I thought, he's been watching Fox News, he's been reading this book, Critical Race Theory, all this other stuff. And that's when I said, and some of you didn't believe me, but now hopefully you'll hear me, I'm not going there. My interest is not, hear this in the right light, to change them. Only Jesus can change them, amen? And so for you and me to try to change them before they even repented and come to Jesus is like futility. That's been the whole history of the world. No, here's God's plan, now you're gonna like this, God wants to change you, and God wants to change me, and he wants to change the church. Larry's right. He wants the church to be the safest place on earth. He wants you and I to not get into all the stuff going on in culture out there, though you're welcome to have your opinions. He wants you and I to read this book, to do series on books like Philemon, hear what God says, which quite frankly is a lot simpler than what the world's into today, and apply that And God's recipe today, and this is why you should not feel threatened by this, because it's really not that tall of an order, though maybe it is, is to love and to fellowship with people not like you and to not judge them and take your prejudices down, whether it's to Native American or Asian or to African American or even to a white person not like you, a nerd, a hippie, whatever it might be. And to love them in the name of Jesus, see them as equal to you, notwithstanding how culture would see them. And as you do that, watch God enter in and do what only he can do. That's the church. And that's the journey that we are on as a church, and we are not letting up on that. That's where we must go, because God wants to use us to make a difference And so our elders are doing this, our staff is doing this, and we have such great hopes for where God is leading us. But we need all of you as well. Love, to fellowship, to knowledge. That's God's plan, relationality is what gives us, it's what sharpens our perspective. But you gotta be in the game and get off the sidelines. And then one final thought today. And this can become your take-home point because it truly brings all of this together. And it's what makes Paul's primary point here so poignant for the church, for you and me, as the carriers of this stuff, and it's this. And that is that the catalyst for our relationality is our faith in Jesus. You've heard me say this a thousand times today, but let's just say for what it is. The catalyst for our relationality is our faith in Jesus, which is why I say maybe now you can get this that the world can't really do what we're talking about here today. I don't mean that arrogantly or negatively. The world does not have the Holy Spirit living in them. The world does not have the word of God, at least that they believe and buy into. You and I do. So when the Bible comes along and says, agape love, koinonia fellowship, knowledge that can actually change the way you view another person, you and I can do that because the Holy Spirit lives in us and Jesus is our savior. There's no excuses. They got a ton of them. But that's why God wants to begin his work in here. So very quickly, one last time, look at this passage here. I'm not gonna read it, just look at the yellow because we looked at all of this already on how love should lead to fellowship, should lead to knowledge, but look at what's interspersed through all of this. Paul says, I thank my God. I'm praying for you, Philemon, of your faith toward the Lord Jesus and of your faith that you have a community now within and you're doing this for Christ's sake, and I have confidence in Jesus as well to tell you the truth, because I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Just see, all interspersed into this is this overt emphasis, this link to our faith in Jesus. And the point is clear. When we, as a church, are focused and in right relationship with Jesus, this becomes the catalyst for the kind of relationality with others that can truly sharpen our perspective turn their heads and let them know they're loved and that Jesus came for them and that we're with them in the battle. This is what I experienced with Schrader 12 years ago. It's what I experienced 40 years ago with the hippie and the nerd. It's what I experienced in Detroit with people that I was trying to link arms with. Maybe now you can understand why the vision of Scottsdale Bible Church stated over a decade ago very clearly is that we want to become a a community of Christ followers who if we're known for anything, we're known for our unwavering faith in Jesus and our unconditional love for each other. I'm telling you, those are the twin pillars of which God builds into his church. Unwavering faith in Jesus, unconditional love for each other and it's even the answer that our world is looking for to bridge all the divides out there. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father? I thank you that in the midst of all the confusion and chaos going on in our culture today, your word, quite frankly, is not all that confusing. It's just hard to put into practice. And Lord, as we're taking some time here in our vision month of January 2021 to talk about this whole idea of Philemon and the journey that he was on and Paul and Onesimus, God, I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts and our minds. As we saw last week, Lord, help us not to be afraid to change our lens and see those around us through kingdom lens, not the lens of this world. And Lord, as we've seen today, may we then, once we have the right lens, engage in deep and rich, rugged relationality with each other that's not afraid to draw close and get to know another brother or sister that might be different from us, to love them and accept them as one of our own. God, I have great hope for what you can and will do through your church, use us, Toward this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.